0: Good morning. Good morning, great to surprisingly be with you all again today, oh, what a delight that is. You we're know, we planning doing a lot of traveling this and we did a little bit over the peninsula, uh, but maybe stay somewhere else further away and go visit a church somewhere, uh, but I think there's something really nice about being able to come back and be with our church family up before I go, so, uh, so that's one of the reasons why we're here. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, I'll say a quick word of prayer for us. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness. We're so thankful for a God who blankets this beautiful creation in the gift of snow. We're so thankful for the God who clothes us with our every need. Who adorns this life and beauty. Who adorns our own lives in the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that we are pre- presented beautiful before his throne. Lord, help us as we meditate upon your word and upon the implications of your word in this culture to continue to delight not only in the life we get to have and use for your glory, but in the position we have before you as children of a loving and tender Father. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray this. Amen. So in the time that I've spent with you all, we've talked a lot about the culture. And some strategies for engaging the culture. There are two things that we had to sweep under the rug a little bit uh, for lack of time up until now. Part of it is really the scriptural foundations for all this. What are some great passages in a sense within which to drive in the tent stakes and anchor ourselves? Uh, There's also the very practical portion. What does this look like in real life? Uh, We won't be able to do as much of the practical today, but I'd love to discuss a couple passages that I think are really helpful for understanding our place in this world and how we engage the culture around us. Now let me kick it to you all for a second. What would you say is one of the fundamental reservations in engaging others with the gospel? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Discipline of possible termination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're saying over there too? Well, I mean, maybe not necessarily work. It's a thing that I work, but mm-hmm. I feel amongst my peers that um, so you kind of bring up the gospel and it's eye rolling yeah. and it's as serious as taste for, for any of those messages. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing, gentlemen. I mean, that's really a fundamental fact about our culture today, right? Yeah. People are not, you know, indifferent, you know they aren't saying, "Hey, make your case to me, and maybe I'll believe you." In general, as we've talked about before, they consider Christianity to be a moral evil. Uh, it is something they find offensive. Yes, brother. The yeah. They'd hate, They'd hate the light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you really, you see the rebellion against God. Romans one. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They're choosing the creature over the creator. And honestly, what did humankind do, the human race do, the one time they actually had God in the flesh? People always tell us, well, if only I saw the miracles, then I would believe. They saw the miracles. Well, if only I met one person who wasn't a hypocrite. They met the one person ever who wasn't a hypocrite. Crucify him. That is what... The human race, that is what we would do if we had God in the flesh. Gotta get strip away all these answers. Well, if only. No. No excuses. The fact is we are by nature at war with God. And when his son came into this world, he was the recipient of our warfare. And yet, thankfully, thanks be to God, he declared a message of peace. It's scary. There's stigma. Especially in certain areas, and I think this is one of those areas, the stigma is particularly large. uh, Because there's really a whole different religious setup here. Uh, This whole kind of neo-paganistic religion is particularly strong in areas like the Northwest. Which means it's not just that people are kind of undecided or don't really know what's going on. Usually people are quite strident. I mean, we have religious rallies in Olympia all the time. Not the sort of religious rallies we'd prefer, uh, maybe the sort where they'd be wearing masks and you know breaking windows, but it's religious rallies nonetheless. But, yeah. The procession of the species. The of the species? Yeah. yeah. I'm still getting acquainted. I just know not to go into Olympia at night. Oh. <laughs> Don't bring the kids. They they nestle up extra close. Uh, Yeah, you see it's on display. And really, this isn't unique either. Uh, Every political movement, by and large, in American society, has been saturated with some of this as well. Back in the progressive era, the era of the early 20th century, the era of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and these guys, they would march around in their coliseums and their political rallies, banging drums and singing songs like uh, uh, Onward Christian Soldiers they considered their political movements to be part and parcel of the gospel and of Christianity. Even then, you already had these, in a sense, counterfeit spiritualities uh, that were very prevalent. Uh, There's stigma. There's fear. There's work pressures. You could potentially pay a price for this. And not to make light of that, but just, in a sense, that is why I'm thankful to be in the culture I am now. Guess what? If you're just a Christian for cultural reasons or for traditional reasons, if you just want to raise your kids with moral values in the church, all these kind of shallow answers for why you're a Christian, then you're probably not going to be a Christian for very long. Uh, You're probably going to disavow it fairly quickly. Why pay that price if it's just a matter of convenience? In order to be a Christian in today's culture, more and more, you really have to believe it's true. It's true. Am I willing to stake my life on this? Am I willing to face these pressures? In the chaplaincy, we get this quite a bit too. We're not allowed to proselytize, officially. Now I've talked about ways in which I kind of get around that. Get them to ask me the questions and have those conversations and those relationships that invite these conversations. But even so, at some point, it would probably be fairly easy for some of these people I counsel. Uh, One couple I counseled last week, you know, we've been talking long enough We've dug through a lot of your dirt. You guys are actually pretty stable now in your marriage. I'm pretty confident you guys are going to survive, probably for the rest of your lives as a couple. But frankly, I'm not satisfied with that. Uh, I think you need to dig your lives deep down, and uh, dig them into something that's true and substantive that you can root your lives in so you not only survive but thrive. So next time, let's talk about Jesus and who you think Jesus is uh, and why. And I'm going to give you the microphone and I'm going to pepper you with questions. I want to hear what you guys have to say. I just don't want BS answers anymore. I don't want uh, lighthearted answers anymore. I want you to honestly wrestle these things because these things are worth wrestling over. It's possible you could take a soldier or a soldier couple like that if I challenge them with that. And I work really hard to build these relationships and say, hey, look, I came in good faith trying to get counseling. And here he is. You know, pushing his religion on me. I think all of us, more and more, are going to face that pressure. What if? It takes one person saying, this person is a bigot. That could be your job. Uh, There's a lot of fear here. Uh, There's a lot of stigma here. And also, the fact of the matter is, are any of you able to save anyone else? I don't know about you, but I always get my identity confused between servant and savior. I constantly think it is my job to save people. One of the reasons I got crushed by my job three months ago and was burnt out and struggling with depression and a lot of other things is more and more I saw these people breaking around me, these marriages breaking around me that I was so heavily invested in. And it was crushing me. Why couldn't I save any of these? Uh, Oh, It it felt like people and marriages were just dropping like flies. Part of that is because I'd started to slip into that savior mode. I have to save these people. I have to save these marriages as opposed to I am a servant." The fact is we can't save anybody, and this is brought, brought painfully to bear upon all of us. How about uh, the wayward child? How about the loved one who is incredibly sick and might not get better? Over and over again, we face these horrible situations that we just can't control. These are heartbreaking. I remember when I became a Christian in high school, there was a girl who committed suicide in my senior year, and I kind of felt responsible. I hardly knew her. I considered myself a missionary to my public high school one of the most progressive areas in the country. I was like, I missed her. Uh, One of my best girlfriends died at age 20 of ovarian cancer. And during my spring breaks from college, I'd come home and visit her. As she would kind of waste away and just care for and love on her. I tried to share the gospel with her. Uh, It was the first time since my broken childhood, I think, that I'd shed tears when I went to her funeral. My parents flew me home for one night. It was actually the night we caught the DC sniper about 15 minutes from her house. Not us personally, other people did. But uh, I broke down for about one minute at her funeral, and then I tightened it back up. I was still emotionally stunted. but I remember having a dream maybe about a year later, and I really struggled. I sink into to a deep depression at Calvin after that for about a semester. Uh, I was a creature of the night, probably two dozen all-nighters. All my grades just tanked. Uh, nobody understood. Uh, I remember having this dream, really a nightmare, in which uh, I had this gal in my arms, and I was like walking along some path in Nightway, and I was crying and screaming out to people, you know, someone help, someone help, someone help. And I would talk to her and try to comfort her. And then there would be no one there to help. And that's kind of how the dream ended. I've had a lot of really messed up dreams, by the way. You guys probably have too. Uh, That sense, that overwhelming sense of helplessness. And it it feels like your soul is just being maimed by these things. And we face that with outreach too. Why can't we save the people we love? Why can't we save anybody? One of the lies I think has been perpetuated for a long, long time is that only if you have the right script, the right argumentation, if you just lead them down the Romans road the right way, then you'll be able to save people. You'll be able to win their souls for Jesus. You could be the next Billy Graham, even know if you listen to him, really his preachers are, in many ways, remarkably ordinary in my mind. Jonathan Edwards. He always called revivals a surprising sovereign act of God's grace. It had nothing to do with you. It was a total surprise the term revival service would have been completely foreign to someone like Jonathan Edwards. Revival is what happens when through the ordinary preaching, uh, ordinary administration preaching of means of grace, people come to know Jesus in mass numbers. We can't save people most all of us have family members, people we love dearly, who are not walking with Jesus. Uh, my family is still about divided in half. Uh, none of Lindsay's family are believers. Uh, that's really painful. We just spent several days with them. It's, I wish we could share that bond with them. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. 1, 1. First Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst but it's for this very reason that in me the worst of sinners he might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who might believe and have eternal life. There's nothing we can do to save people. And guess what? What? We're not even particularly good at our job as Christians. But here's the beautiful thing. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Guess what? God chose me because I'm a dummy. He chose me because he loves me. Not because there's anything lovable about me. That's why I constantly tell people in marriage, the times when you're best loving your spouse is when they are least lovable when they don't deserve your love at all, but you give it to them anyway. He chose the very worst of us. That right there in itself is startling. Choose the very worst of us. It reminds me of all these times that God would say in the Old Testament, guys, I didn't choose you because of who you are. I chose you because I chose you. I chose you out of my love alone. And that's kind of a constant reminder you get in places like Deuteronomy. He chose us for this reason. That in us, the worst of sinners, the worst of sinners, he might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who might believe. They see you and they say, Wow, what a wreck. Must be a pretty amazing God. They're supposed to see our weakness so they can see his strength. We're supposed to be incompetent, insufficient, inadequate. Come up with your N word. We're supposed to be that. So that people might see the grace and glory of God at work. I once told this to poor villagers in Malawi. There's a reason why I came over here, not George W. Bush. If George W. Bush, president at the time, came over here, he'd been like, wow, look at the American president. Uh, I come over here, and they're like, who's that? But wow, pretty cool guy. Uh, God chooses the worst of us and the weakest of us, the most fragile and broken of us, and that's not a mistake. That, in a sense, sells the lie to another thing we're often told with regard to outreach. Not only that, if you do the right things, you're going to save somebody. But you've got to have this testimony. Look at where I was. You know, I was in jail, I was doing drugs, all this other stuff, and now look at me. I wear a tie. (laughs) I drive a Mercedes. Uh, No problem with the tie, Pastor Brett. Uh, It's this kind of poverty to wealth story, this pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap story of Christianity, where you've got to be strong for people, where you've got to give them all the right answers. And if they do it just right, maybe, hey, they can end up just like you. An anti-gospel. And yet this is how a lot of testimonies are put out there. Just become like me. What if, what if you were a little more willing to be weak and to bear your soul with others? To tell somebody, hey man, I've been struggling. Someone who's not a believer. Treat them like a friend. I've really been struggling recently. Uh, people always want to know how I'm doing. I love this as a chaplain. I have a lot of people who think they're being, who they think they're the first one to say this. They'll say, hey chap, I'm sure no one, ask you how you're doing. You're always helping everybody else. So how are you doing? And there's actually a lot of people who do ask that. And you should try to tell them. It's just like Lindsay. I love my wife for many reasons but one of them is she's incredibly honest. You ask her how her day's going. If it's not going well, you're going to hear it. There is no gloss over it. She's brutally honest and I love that. Hey guys, I'm struggling. Hey, you know, we're having a tough time right now. Do you have any wisdom for me? Because frankly, no, unbelievers have wisdom too. Showing some vulnerability. I have so many soldiers. It happened happened this past week. One young soldier said, he told me horrendous stories about his past. Horrendous, which sadly are all too common to his culture. He said, one of the reasons why I knew I could finally come to you, and I haven't talked to anybody else about this since I've become an adult, is because I know you share some of these experiences. You've told me some about your past. And because of that, I feel like I can talk about mine. I don't think it is surprising how many soldiers have come to me based upon that and why my counselors usually double that of the other chaplains. It's not a point of pride for me. It's not because I'm a, an expert at counseling. I'm not. I'm, I'm usually learning new things through Pastor Brett and uh, Chaplain Fari as they're counseling me. Uh, I'm learning new things all the time. It's the vulnerability factor. Here's something we can finally open up to. And I think most of our coworkers and neighbors are the same way. They're desperate for someone to talk to, just talk to about life. But First Timothy 1, 15 and 16 gives us permission to do that, to be weak. I know Paul's got lots of great passages about this too, you know, the thorn in the flesh. Uh, one of the things I pray at the end of every counseling appointment is, Lord, I know I've said many foolish things today, and my foolishness, show forth your wisdom. I'm incredibly weak, and in my weakness, show forth your strength. You know, this is Corinthians language. And I want my soldiers to hear that, too. By the way, I've never been turned down in these counseling appointments to pray with a soldier afterwards. And virtually all of them are are non-Christians. We're supposed to be weak. That's part of the answer here. If you're thinking you've got to do A, B, and C, and D, and somehow you'll win them, you're wrong. One of the mistakes we often make in that, too, is that we often think it's a matter of mere intellect. They just need to be educated. If only they understand our proofs for creation, our proofs for the resurrection, then they'll believe. And that's where a lot of arrogance often comes from because we've turned it into an intellectual distinction. You know, a lot of our counterparts in other evangelical circles are way too emotionalistic. And so they're always putting an emotional sales pitch on people. And, you know, you just got to have faith. And usually it's all tied to experience. Uh, And if you don't have that, then obviously you're not faithful. And obviously, you know... that can be arrogant, too, but we can do that too intellectually. We actually work really hard on loving God with our minds. Uh, and we sometimes get this confused. Remember, the difference is not between, you know, smart and ill-informed, it's not Republican Democrat. Uh, it's not homeschool public school. We draw all these incredible lines, especially the culture wars over the last 30 years or so. Belief and unbelief. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. And those who need to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. And guess what? We're right there with the people that we're loving who are not believers. They're broken, right? Sometimes they don't realize it, but they are. Usually you can expose it with a little bit of conversation. Are we broken too? Which is why those testimonies can be so seditious. Hey, don't worry guys, you get on this side of the divide. Don't worry, you won't have to take up your cross and follow after Jesus the rest of your life and wage war against your soul, which is always waging war against God as his spirit is at work with you within you. Those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ and those who need to be. Need to be. Two bonds of brokenness we share with every other person. Sin and suffering. That means we have an immediate contact point with every other person in this world. I can relate to them in terms of sin. I can relate to them in terms of suffering. What we can't relate is grace, but if we do enough time talking about the former two, usually we have a better time talking about the last part. The double bond of brokenness, sin and sin and suffering, gives you an entrance point into every single person's life. And usually, if you are engaging those types of issues, they come asking you about grace what is what is our hope so that's one passage i cling to that's one passage i need to remember day after day after day because i constantly keep trying to sit back in a savior mode i wish i didn't i do that with my soldiers i do that with my wife i do that with my kids it is arrogant it exhausts me it disappoints those i'm trying to serve and i'm no good to anyone else because i've forgotten my place he chooses the worst of us. It's no surprise that then in verse 17, Paul breaks out into praise. He gives one of these great, uh, to kind of, to God be the glory uh, remarks, where he's just effusive in his praise. Because he's the worst of sinners too. He murdered a man, and that's pretty bad. Uh, and now he's going to die for the Savior who died for him. So we are insufficient incompetent, inadequate. But that is no reason to grow cynical. It's amazing how cynical we can be as Christians. What what right do we have to be cynical? So many people out there are cynical, and they are dark and nihilistic, meaningless in terms of how they think about life. And they, they brood, and it's poisonous. And yet you often see this within the pews as well. We get really really cynical. You know, back in my day, it wasn't like this. I told Chaplain Fari recently, you know, like, both my wife and I, with our backgrounds, like, there's times where we just wish our family could be like that Americana family of the 1950s. Like, we just want to be in a neighborhood where everyone's not getting divorced. Maybe one or two. We wish the things that used to be exceptional were still exceptional. And that our kids would be strong, mature, believing adults, Everything would be healthy. Like we'd have a vast community around us. And we've talked a little bit with you about that too, Pastor. Right? Uh, and that's not the Christian dream. That's the materialistic American dream. Uh, that's the white picket fence. As if the problem, the suffering, the sin, was simply not having that stuff. I don't yearn for remade culture. I in first or a remade heart, which, by the way, that's still an incredibly painful ordeal, and it will be, as long as I'm alive, and for you too. And then remade relationships. It's God's grace is at work through us, through us, in us and through us. But we are the worst of sinners. We should have no right to be cynical. Psychologically speaking, we're often told that anxiety Anger, depression—all these things are often rooted in us trying to control those things that are uncontrollable. You no, know, why can't I keep my kid on the straight and narrow? Like I know, right? I have a kid who runs around who and does my every scheme every day. Uh, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not. Uh, why can't I just keep him under control? Uh, these things can provoke anxiety. Anger, depression. I want to control this thing. I can't. And so I'm going to worry about it. Or I'm going to resent and get angry about it. Or I'm just going to give up. On myself, on God, on the world around me. And now I'm telling you guys, embrace the helplessness. And yet theologically speaking, this is actually a wonderful place to be. The reason why it causes anxiety and anger and depression in most people is because they have nothing to fall back on. So you're told, focus on those things you can control. Where are the ways you can work ahead? Where are the relationships you can invest in? If nothing else, how can you modify your own attitude and your own heart? These, this is your kind of your common psychology nowadays. This is resiliency training in the army. Control what you can Control. And that will help you alleviate the anxiety, the anger, the the depression. And so you're faced with this choice. Um, Helpless. With all these bad things accompanying it. Or I have a certain degree of control. But it's a very shallow control. uh, That can just turn over again in a moment. As soon as you feel out of control again. And so that's where everybody is. One or the other. The reason why... lack of control, helplessness is so scary for them it's because there's no order or control beyond that we of course know different it's incredibly painful to admit you're helpless remember Christ I use this line all the time this verse all the time he said I came for the sick not the healthy the sinners not the righteous for the worst of us One of the beautiful things about choosing the very worst of us is we're much easier selves in a sense in terms of our own helplessness. We know the poverty of our own lives. and We go to the riches of Jesus. We know our helplessness when we're honest. All of us have a story right now in our own lives of something that is undoing us in our ambitions for control. And so it brings us to the cross and through the cross to a sovereign God who is sovereign over all this. And this brings me to another passage that I find very helpful with regard to outreach. Another one of my very favorites. The martyrdom of Stephen. a man I was named after in Acts 7. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole passage. Maybe at some point I'll preach that to you guys. I don't know. Uh, But one particular implication from the aftermath of Stephen's death. If you remember in Acts chapter 8, the very beginning of Acts chapter 8, God's people were on the run. Why? Because of Saul's persecution. Because of Saul's persecution. Was well, this like social stigma? Like, you guys get out of here. Or I'm taking your job. Well, what was this looking like? he was about to f- develop into total destruction. Of the total destruction. finally, in a sense. <laughs> he would have a final word he would crush the head just like he tried to do with our savior this is the darkest day in the history of the church the infant church on the verge of being wiped out by this mass genocide by this bloodthirsty murderer named Saul of Tarsus men, women, and children running for their lives down the dusty paths can you imagine that? all of you picking up your family members and taking off a dead sprint, just trying to keep them alive but where did they go? As they were running for their lives, probably crying out, Why, Lord, why? They went to Judea and Samaria. What did Jesus promise in Acts chapter 1? I will send my spirit upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They were running with a sword at their backs, into the first great missionary advance in the history of the church. With a sword at their back as they were wondering, why, Lord, why they were fulfilling the promise of Christ and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And that's really the whole theme of the book of Acts. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. As if somehow they were some sort of supermen, they weren't. It was the Acts of King Jesus as he was building and defending and preserving his church by his holy word and his holy spirit. The whole evolution of that book is that storyline, which coincidentally, because it's not about a bunch of supermen, that same storyline continues today. King Jesus building, defending, preserving his church by word and by spirit. And what won't prevail against King Jesus? The gates of hell will not prevail. Not for a second. We are helpless. Our God is invincible. Don't for, think for a second that he's ever deterred, that he's turned to the left or to the right, that somehow he is failing. I'm prone to believe that. I'm prone to believe that when I think about the, my mess of a heart, when I think about the, my upbringing, when I think the way, about the ways in which I fall short as a husband and father, I'm like, well, clearly God's not doing his part. But that's not true. We so often try to read God through the lens of our feelings and our circumstances. We start with what we don't know. What are you doing here, God? And work our way back up to him. Now, where are you? As opposed to saying, hey, we do have God's word. We can know his character, his heart, his works and ways throughout history. Most importantly, what he's done on that cross. And we start with what we do know and work our way back down to what we don't know. Say, okay, I don't get what you're doing here. I'll get, for example, why at this particular moment, at this particular stage, this is when I leave Lindsay and the kids. We have our theories, our worldly theories. Uh, But why now? I don't know. I didn't pick the dates. I didn't pick the times. And people like to blame the army, but ultimately, it's not ultimately the army either. It's the president who ultimately authorized this particular mission, but that's not him. It is God who moves armies. It is God who raises up leaders and casts them down. What do I know about my God that will anchor me through all these circumstances? What we often perceive to be setbacks. Why aren't my kids walking with the Lord? Or what a lot of kids are asking nowadays, why aren't my parents walking with the Lord? As they're struggling with these things, why can't I save this person I care about? Why is this marriage seemingly dissolving right before my eyes? I can't do anything about it. You know what? What do I know about my God? Sovereign in all things. Will he ever lose a battle? Will he ever cry mulligan? He does not make mistakes. This is a cliche until you realize how broken and messed up you are. And then this is life itself. This is what our God is doing. Why can't we go out there and say, hey guys, I have wounds too. (laughs) I'm bloody just like you. But if anything, our God also knows wounds. He, he bore them. And he can also bind them. So let's take our wounds to him together. We're there together. This is one of the advantages, I think, of having grown up in this culture. That Lindsay and I often talk about. You know, I grew up in the Berkeley of the East Coast. Uh, she grew up in Seattle. I could say the Berkeley of the West Coast. I'm not sure Berkeley necessarily has anything on Seattle. I. Uh, We grew up in environments very, very hostile to the gospel. Lindsay then went to one of the most radical colleges in the country. As a baby Christian, very little under her belt. Didn't know what the word theology meant. Uh, Any of the big fancy terms that SOPCers like to use. Uh, And being in those environments and growing up amidst those, we see how God is at work in this sort of culture. We're not losing our culture. For those of us who are raised in it, we already knew this culture was here. and God is working in it through it just like he has every single other culture in every single other time. Our God is sovereign. We've got to hold these things together. When I look back on these particular passages, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Acts 7 going into Acts chapter 8 and seeing how God is at work. And through incredible brokenness, despite everything we see and we feel, I have hope. I have hope. And I'm ready to engage the next person. This isn't me at stake. It's amazing how often, how often I fear the wrath of man. How often when I'm counseling people, I'm like, oh man, did I just blow it? Uh, There's times I apologize at the end of a counseling appointment, like, I'm sorry it's taken till now to get to know you, or I'm sorry I feel like I'm missing something here. I'm sorry I feel like that's really misfired this time around. Uh, I, I don't struggle with being blunt. You guys know this, but I struggle with what people think about me. I want everybody to like me. I like everybody, by and large. Rare exceptions. Uh, and I just, I want them to see how much I like them, my heart toward them, so they like me too. I want that. And in a sense, then I fear their wrath. But you know what troubles me more than their wrath? The fact that they're facing God's wrath. And I used to as well. And now I don't. And so I'm more concerned with God's wrath toward them than their wrath toward me. And thanks be to God, I no longer face that wrath. Now, that said, We have a couple minutes left. So I've given you two passages and why I think they're both so important. A few resources that I've relied upon a lot for some of these lectures, but also for a lot of my counseling. One, I've mentioned it before. uh, Ben Sasse's book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. He is a believer right now, a senator from Nebraska, used to be the trustee of the seminary that three of us in here went to, wonderful man, goes to PCA church in the D.C. area, and is becoming really the great scholar and gentleman of the Senate. Not only is he faithfully holding the torch, but he keeps telling people and keeps writing these books about culture, not about politics. If you're just talking about politics, you're missing it. Guys, the trend lines are beneath us. What's happening is beneath the political realm, and that's where he keeps going. But them, why we hate each other and how to heal, he does a wonderful job at painting a picture of where the culture's at right now. Technology, the family, the community—all of this—and then some common grace ways because this was made for a popular audience for how to heal, how to rebuild community, and stuff like that. Uh, some other helpful books: uh, any book that helps you see popular culture at large. So for me, one book the past couple years was *Hillbilly Elegy*. Hill, what's that? *Hillbilly Elegy*. So it was a New York Times bestseller for a long, long time, but it painted this wonderful co- picture of blue-collar white culture in small towns and in the boonies. Yeah, E-L-E-G-Y. Uh, it's a wonderfully written book. It's this own guy's biography. Uh, but it really showed you it's not just inner cities that are suffering right now. Uh, blue-collar white America is really suffering right now, too, uh, and they're getting more and more upset about it. More and more angry, uh, and so that was really helpful for me because I was living in, in Wisconsin at the time in 2016, and I was very convinced I knew how that election was going to end up, and I was wrong. Uh, and i better understand why now. Uh, again, cultural. It's not political. It's cultural. Another really helpful book. Yeah. the writer? That's JD. Uh, the first book is Ben Sass. Senator Ben Sass. and the second book is JD Vance. Another really helpful book. The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was one of the great new atheists. He also is a man, as this the author is a guy named Larry Alex Taunton. T-A-U-N-T-O-N. Taunton. Christopher Hitchens, years ago before he died, challenged any evangelical who wanted to to debate him in public. Uh, that included people who some, some of you probably know, like Doug Wilson, uh, other folks like that. But Larry Alex Taunton is a head of a, an evangelical think tank. He's an intellectual. And he offered to host all these debates. And so he and H- Hitchens started driving everywhere, and they became fast, fast friends. And so this book's all about their friendship. Is Taunton is trying to lovingly, gently share the gospel with them. We have no evidence that Hitchens ever converted and yet, the nature of their relationship is something beautiful, I think a great model for how we can do this. And I think you'll find it quite moving. Uh, a good author for engaging people with, intellectually with the gospel right now. Not in terms of the arguments you use, but how you do it. Uh, help me for a second, Brian. Uh, stand to reason, guy. Yes, tactics. Kokel, Greg Kokel. Uh, he's got a book called Tactics. We've, so often we marshal up arguments, but how do you actually have a conversation? How do you defuse somebody when they're angry? Kokel. So K-O-U-K-L. I keep giving you all these guys a tough names. Sass, by the way, is S-A-S-S-E. Uh, it's not my fault, it's theirs. They should change their names. Uh, Greg Kokel. Tactics about how you actually engage people in conversation. He's also got another book, uh, The Story of, I'm blanking on it, just look up his name. Uh, But it's kind of, he's telling the story of scripture but a kind of modern language, kind of engaging modern schools of thought as he's doing so. Because everybody likes things in story form nowadays. And so he's really good at doing that. I've told you before apologetics is also counseling and vice versa. If you want like a lay primer on how to engage people's hearts like in a counseling sort of mode, Elise Fitzpatrick, uh, Counsel from the Cross. She's tied in the Westminster circles too. She's part of this whole biblical counseling movement. Uh, I think she co-wrote the book with Dennis Johnson. Uh, just really good. It seems simple, but again, it's just it's a great way of of gauge people's hearts with the gospel. So those are some books I've got a list a mile long. The beautiful thing about the Army is when you're constantly out in the field and you're not with your wife and kids, which I prefer to every night of the week, you have a lot of alone time at night when lights go out. You turn the headlamp on and you can read a lot of books. And that's where a lot of this has been coming from. As I've been engaged with people day in and day out, I've had almost endless time for reading alongside. so if you want more resources on any of these particular issues, any particular piece of anything having to do with any of this stuff, let me know, and I'll try to funnel those to you. Uh, if you have any questions for me, you, uh, please engage me after this. would love to continue to talk. I might be here next Sunday. I'm due to leave on the 25th. But it's the Army. It's so. Oh, just hang on by the seat of your pants. Yes, sir. If I might be here next week, what? If you end up being here, and saying you'd like to teach Sunday school again? <laughs> if I am here next week, I always enjoy these opportunities. Okay. Uh, thank you. Again, I delight in this church. What a wonderful place to rest my head at the beginning of each week before I go out and do battle. So thank you all for being a good, for being a faithful church family to me and to my family. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for this church, this little corner of the kingdom where you are Keeping the light lit in this region of our country. Lord, we delight that the gates of hell will not prevail. We delight that it seems, in general, wherever Satan stamps upon the church, the fire of the church, he simply kicks sparks everywhere else. I'm so grateful for the preaching and teaching of this church, uh, for Pastor Brett, for soon to be Pastor Brian. For their faithful proclamation of your word, that we know that's where this all begins. We just need to hear from you every week and be reminded who we are in Christ. Who are we without that? Without them we have nothing. With them we have everything. I'm so thankful for the church family we have here, the people who share meals, but more than that who share love. I'm thankful for the brokenness of the people here. So many of us bearing wounds. So many of us hurting right now in incredibly profound ways. And those of us who do not have anything dramatic are hurting underneath the ordinary weight of life's affairs. I'm thankful that people here are honest about that and share these heartaches. That we're not always simply praying for our, our uncle three times removed uh, and him finding a job. But we're praying for our own aches. And pains. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are not lords of this knowledge. We're not lords of the gospel. We are servants. We are ambassadors. We're not trying to argue people in submission or prove them wrong. We want to share with them the very hope of life. We'll do so with tears in our eyes, we'll do so on our knees. We'll do so dusty and bedraggled. But we want other people to know Jesus. And we pray that for our own families as well. As husbands and wives, we often fail one another. and We fail our kids. As kids, we often fail our parents. We know our weaknesses and our inadequacies. Lord, who of us can stand before you? And yet here we are, adorned in the righteousness of Christ, before our God, finding favor. And not only favor, but a Father. Help us to rest in those everlasting arms. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you as always.